Welcome to the Close Knit Podcast, a podcast that aims to hold space for conversation about the ways we use fiber to process life and world events. I'm your host, Ani Lee. My interest in fiber goes back to childhood, when I'd pore over bedding catalogs and obsess over fiber content and thread count. My mother, bless her, taught me to knit at age 10, and I've fallen increasingly in love with all things fiber ever since. I started the Close Knit Podcast in 2016, and I've had the pleasure and privilege of speaking to over 50 incredible people since then. On this podcast, you'll hear from all kinds of folks who share a love of fibers, from full-time practicing artists to those whose main practice is mending their garments. I'm interested in hearing and sharing as many people's stories and experiences with fiber as I possibly can, because I believe each of these unique stories is powerful and teaches us more about how humans use fiber to make sense of the world around us. This podcast is supported by a very special community on Patreon. Pledging just $5 a month there helps me keep Close-Knit up and running by covering hosting and streaming costs and paying my wonderful editor. I cannot thank you all enough for your support, as it's what enables me to sustainably continue this work. So if you've ever enjoyed an episode, please consider pledging your support at patreon.com slash closeknit. That's www.patreon.com slash closeknit. Hey, it's Ani of Close Knit, and I am here with Vivian Shaochen. Vivian Shaochen is a potter, sewist, and knitter and architect by profession. The order of that list changes frequently. She has been pursuing pottery for almost four years. She learned sewing from her parents when she was a child through their clothing manufacturing business. She picked sewing back up as an adult in the last 20 months or so, and now she has transitioned to drafting almost all of her own garments. She taught herself to knit about two years ago as a way to keep her hands busy when she's too tired to be in the studio. Hi, Vivian. Hey, Ani. How are you? I am good. I am very, very happy to have you with me today. I feel like we've had lots of sweet little zoom calls that have just been like for fun which to be honest like I don't do very many like for fun zoom calls these days because it just feels like my social capacity is like at an all-time low (laughs) like just the lowest ever yeah totally same I mean in some ways working from home has been such a gift because I'm so introverted and it takes a lot out of me to like socially interact so yeah totally A hundred percent. I feel the same way where it's like, I think back to like my pre-COVID life or what, how I had to be just to like go to my job and stuff. And like, I had to get up at like 630 in the morning. I needed to like get on my bike to get down to the BART's, you know, which is the train over here. And then like get on the BART and be on the really super crowded BART, like, like, you know, butt to butt in this, like, and I am a very, I have a lot of sensitivities. So that really (laughs) was hard for me. But I think about how like, we just sort of did that or I I did. I know that like there, I know that that's not necessarily been the case for every person, but for the folks who have had the privilege, I think of like working from home or being able to have that kind of flexibility. It's like, I know that we just sort of did it, right? Like I just like managed to go into the office and and be around a ton of people. And in honesty, I didn't manage it very well. I had like a lot of anxiety and I had, was working through a lot of stuff in therapy, but I feel like we just sort of did it. Like, I, does that feel that way for you too? Where you're yeah, like, I, I know, was totally. doing it before, right? I know. And now it seems like, wow, I can't believe I was doing that, like without yeah. really thinking about it. And it really has given me so much more energy, like mental space, mental, emotional energy to put into something else. Like I didn't realize how much I was spending just doing all that stuff that, you know, you just did. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's been a conversation between my partner and me because I do, I feel similarly where like, I'm really introverted. I have like the ability to be extroverted when it's necessary of me, like when it's required in the social setting. But in general, like I get energy from being alone or with like one other person. And and my partner was like, I feel like you just have a little more like emotional energy. <laughs> and I'm like, I feel like this is a backhanded compliment. <laughs> <laughs> You're paying more attention. To, you know, that kind of like, I think he's not wrong though, that like not needing to have all of the like 
interactions with people that are just small and and some of those are lovely like I really I think there's actually something really humanizing and important about interactional like transactional exchanges if you're like going to get a coffee or getting yourself a sandwich and that kind of momentary like I see your humanity like other person who exists in the world like there's yeah totally it's like song that I love where the person's like it's time to go outside, say hello to someone. I also have eyes. Like just this, this is like recognition of like, I also have eyes. Like it just sort of feels those little moments I think are really, really life affirming, like really life giving. But at the same time, when you have to, like when it's sort of obligatory for you to like exchange words about your weekend with your coworker or whatever, I just sort of like, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's it's a balance. It's definitely a balance. And now that the balance has shifted more towards being, you know, alone or at home, I'm finding those interactions really sweet, like you were saying, really lovely. And, and when I'm walking around the city, if I'm running an errands, I'm like, oh, wow, like, this is actually so nice. Whereas I kind of take that for granted when I have to do it daily or, you know, there's other stuff going on when I can't really enjoy it. So I, yeah, I totally hear that. Yeah, I feel the same way. So I'm curious, like now that you are sort of, you're working from home as an architect, like how your kind of daily practice has shifted and and you mentioned kind of like feeling like you have a little more space, like maybe a little more time or a little more emotional space. Like what has that kind of looked like for your different creative practices? Well, I, so working as an architect, I work a full-time schedule. So Mm. our office hours, you know, are like nine to six or so. Um, So I, I try to stay pretty close to those hours as a guideline for myself so that I can take maybe 20 or 30 minutes in the morning to, to work on something else for myself. Mm. I I tend to have more energy in the morning. I think I've, I've become a morning person as an adult. I didn't think I would be I think when I was younger yeah but more I'm so energized in the morning like I can I feel like my ideas just like you know I just want to work on them so even if it's 20 to 30 minutes I'll work on my next pattern draft or something you know just mm. just drawing a few things calculating whatever it takes um and even if it's that short amount of time I still feel like it's really productive and gives me more energy to to go on and then and then I'll start my you know hours at work yeah. and dedicate you know that time during the day to work and I'm pretty good about not working when I'm not on the clock if that makes sense so yeah that's great not checking emails regularly after hours um, unless there's like something going on usually during construction there's more sensitive time sensitive topics so I I might check in then but even in in the evenings um, I, I tend to get more tired after work yeah, most people do, I'm sure. So I I've shifted um, my evening time now to more of the knitting related activities. They yeah. tend to just be more repetitive and like more relaxing in a way because I don't have to think about every action yes. when you're sewing and when you're drafting or if I'm making pottery, which I almost never do in the evenings because it takes so much focus. Mm. I mean, when you're pattern drafting, you're you're solving a puzzle in your head. Like you're trying to be like, okay, if I move this line, it affects this. And so you're just always, you know, doing these mental gymnastics, which I tend to not have the energy to do in the evenings anymore. So yeah, yeah, just recognizing that as part of my daily flow, daily like energy spending. Yes. Has been really nice. Yeah, I actually relate to a lot of that, of feeling like my brain kind of works the best first thing in the morning and feeling like I want to give at least some of that good brain juice to my like non-day job job. Yeah, totally. (laughs) You know, like I see around me and I imagine that this is the case for architecture only just from the folks I know who've gone into architecture where like the expectation is pretty high of like your work output and, and how frequently you'll be switched into your work mode, even though like you're supposed to quote quote just be working nine to five or nine to six you know like you're supposed to be working a 40 hour week or whatever and but just that like sometimes that expectation that you'll be continuing to check emails or continuing to be available and I think it requires like quite a lot of discipline to be able to be like great I know I produce good work and I know I'm I'm like you know if, if you're on 
time with your deadlines and stuff, like to really close up at the end of the day and be like, this is time for me to do something else. Mm -hmm. I will say I'm pretty lucky to work at a firm that respects those boundaries Mm. really well. They also encourage us to pursue our extracurriculars, like whatever we're interested in. And it's been so refreshing Mm. because in past jobs, I've I've always had to hide that I do these extra things outside of work because it makes me feel like, or it makes me seem like I'm not 100% invested in work or I'm, I'm distracted. Yeah. But I have, I've never had that feeling at my current job. And I'm so grateful to have that kind of support, even from my professional circles, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. And it, I mean, it's, yeah, I'm glad, I appreciate you mentioning the fact that like, you know, it also requires that your employer is respectful of boundaries, but I think it's just so wild that there is at all the expectation that it would be like, oh no, work is the only thing I care about. Like I don't, I'm not a person. (laughs) I know. And some firms really are like that. And I, I have experienced one like that and I didn't last very long in that environment. And I have a lot of friends who have had, you know, bad experiences in architecture. It's a shame because it's a really rewarding field and it's, you get to do really interesting things, but Mm. just the work culture sometimes can be really difficult. Yeah. I mean, I remember seeing it with friends who went into architecture and in school because they, the, I did a like science degree and we would be in the GIS lab, like doing mapping stuff, which was in the architecture building. And I remember just like witnessing architecture (laughs) students who were just (laughs) sleeping on a table because they'd been there all night. And I was like, oh my God. I know. Oh my gosh. I'm laughing because it really is such a bonding boot camp experience. You, You totally bond with your architecture class and classmates. It's just, it's so intense. Yeah. It's interesting stuff like that. I feel similarly about the experiences that I had doing like running, like I ran cross country and track and that sort of stuff. That kind of like, I don't exactly want to call it trauma bonding because that's, that feels like not, that feels maybe invalidating of like traumatic events. And I don't want to, I don't want to say, state it as that exactly. Like I don't want to overstate the impact that like doing something really hard together has but it it is like you bond over this like we did we like survived something that was really hard together and I like feel really mixed about that as a thing yeah absolutely (laughs) but yeah I I appreciate too you mentioning that like 20 or 30 minutes is enough time to like have a little bit of space for a creative practice I think there is something I like talking to people about on the podcast is how they structure their lives particularly people who are structuring their work in such a way that maybe they're not trying to monetize their like quote side hustle or this other part of their or you know maybe they are but it's not like a big part of their monetizing like their income stream so I appreciate hearing from people how they kind of structure those different Mm -hmm. pieces of their lives you know Mm -hmm. I also appreciated what you mentioned about having knitting as a thing that you go to in the evenings because this has actually been something I've been talking I have a couple of like text message threads with friends that I've been you know we text sometimes and I feel like I'm trying out new ways of like how do I have connection with people I care about without the vessel of like Instagram facilitating it and more on that later probably (laughs) but I have been talking with a couple of friends about the sort of like activation energy required to get on your sewing machine or to start doing something sewing related and how I'm always just kind of like you know I just slumped over a little bit just to to, to sort of show that like I feel like I'm the person who's like I'm lazy (laughs) and I'm lay I'm literally like horizontal in bed and like knitting like this like which is probably really bad for my health or something but I feel like it's a common experience among my friends who are sort of like multi-craft like who who have dabbled in both sewing and knitting where they're like knitting is just the space like it's just so the energy required to start doing something or continue a project is just so minimal. Does that resonate for you? Yes. I actually, so I started knitting because I had this really long commute when I first moved to Philly. I was, I was still working on my New York job. So I I was commuting at first it was daily. And then we started bumping that down to four and then three days. How far is that? I'm sorry. California nurses. I have no idea. Oh, it's close. I mean, for two major cities, it's really close. It it was about two hours and like chain, maybe like five minutes door to 
door, door to door. So like from my door to the train station and taking the train, getting into work. It's a lot. I mean, it's like four hours a day. Oh Mm -hmm. gosh, Vivian. Whoa. I know. know. Well, I I was kind of forced into it in in a lot of ways, but Mm -hmm. I'm also grateful that I was able to keep that job. I was waiting for my green card. So I'm Canadian. Um, so I did not know that. Oh, really? I thought I mentioned it at some point, but I guess. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So when I, when I was applying, I wasn't allowed to change jobs. So I had to keep my old job, which was great too. I I love that job. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't a huge, uh, sacrifice if that's the right word, but Mm. it made me, you know, try to find something to fill up that time. Yeah. And so, yeah, I just kind of taught myself to knit, bought some yarn and started knitting on the train. Cause I, I could work on the train or I could study on the train, but I wasn't too motivated to study yet at that point, um, for my exam. So Yeah. yeah. So I just like picked up knitting and have been obsessed with it ever since. It's just something that you can do anywhere with not much equipment. And I started knitting before I started sewing seriously, actually, too. So mm. I, I hear you about, you know, that activation energy required because when I started sewing, it was I didn't have a permanent sewing setup. So I'd have to take yeah. the machine out. I'd have to, like, get the fabric out. I'd have to just make sure I had everything I needed to, yeah. to have a productive quality sewing session <laughs> and I just remember comparing that to knitting and be like I could do knitting anytime like I do for five minutes and make progress right and you can just like pull it out of a basket or like a bag yeah. and be like now I have a project now I'm working on the project I want to know like do you remember what inspired you to start knitting was it just like I have free time this is this makes sense to me or do you remember there being like a project or something you saw in the world that you were like I actually want to make that thing I don't I don't know if it was one thing I had a friend at work who had knit a scarf and it was it was in Tribeca so Pearl Soho was two minutes walking from the office oh yeah and so myself and a friend like we we used to just walk by Pearl Soho frequently and just like and one day I was like let's just go and get some yarn <laughs> so I just like walked in. I didn't know anything. I didn't. I knew nothing about yarn. I mean, I we bought a skein, and they were like, "Oh, do you need us to wind that?" And I'm like, "Yes, absolutely." And I had no idea what she's talking about. And I see her doing this like umbrella windy thing, and I'm like, "Wow, this is like beyond what I understand right now." But I'm sure it's gonna be fine. But yeah, I remember it was um, Brooklyn Tweed Shelter yarn. Okay. I know. And now You're I'm like, like first thing I picked up. <laughs> I I don't know. I was just drawn to like the rustic quality of it. And I didn't know it at the time, but I am really drawn to those kind of qualities in yarn. Do you remember what your first project was? Yes. I wanted to knit a hat, but flat because I could not wrap my head around (laughs) knitting in the round. Yeah, yeah. So I I mean, some people start with knitting in the round and I'm like, okay, power to you, but I would not have been able to do that. No, I could not understand it. So I I was like searching the internet for a, a flat hat pattern. Um, I found a random free one and, you know, I just started learning from that. Yeah. I've, I periodically look those up these days just out of curiosity for like thinking about teaching other people to knit. Cause I feel like, I feel like we teach people to knit scarves oftentimes as their first oh. project. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exasperation, oh. right? Like your hands are like up at your head because you're like, why are we teaching people something that's going to be like such delayed gratification and such a cost investment. Like it's so many things. So many things. And it's so <laughs> that made no sense. I, I nothing against scarves, but knitting I've never knit a scarf. I've never knit a blanket or anything like that because I feel like it would just be so boring. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's like a I do think there's something to having somebody just kind of go. Just kind of like I feel like when I was teaching so I, I've tried out a lot of different things to try to like teach the basics of knitting, but also give something that people want to take away and that feels useful. Like it's a really hard, I feel like it's actually a pretty tall ask to like have a project that is like useful, that is enjoyable to make, that is like not very expensive. There were all these things I was trying to factor in when I was trying to teach classes so that I could do it in a way that I felt was like affordable enough, but that also paid me anything, (laughs) you know, just all those things. And I used to start people on like kind of the basics of a scarf. And I liked seeing people kind of just 
not everybody felt this way, but eventually after about an hour, a lot of people, you could see them just starting to get it. Like the penny would drop a little bit and they would be like, because I only ever just taught like garter stitch. Just like, I was like, you only need to know this and one other stitch and you can do everything that you ever want to do in knitting. And everybody was like, what? That's not true. And I was like, it's true. You'll get there eventually. Like everything is just a combination of knitting and purling. Like you already know knitting. All you need to do is learn purling. Like, you know, I feel like people are just like so mind blown by that. Yeah, I was mind blown. I was like, there's no way. I still am. (laughs) Yeah. I know. My partner has often asked, like, is there another, like, could there be another stitch? Like, is there anything besides knitting and purling? And I was like, I don't think it's possible because it's like you either enter the front of the stitch or you enter the back of the stitch. Like there's no, everything else is just like a combination of doing those things or like knitting two together or, you know, kind of using the stitch to make another. And like, I've tried to conceptualize of this and whoever the fuck thought of this, like, I should really read more about this. Actually, (laughs) I have no idea who like came up with knitting or if it was like, I also wonder if it's a bit like, like a running stitch where like lots of different cultures around the world were doing their equivalent of a running stitch, like Sashiko in Japan and like, you know, running stitch, what we called it in like the UK and in America. I like wonder if knitting had that same kind of thing but I'm getting really tangential here I've tried a lot of different things to like figure out how people how I could give them something that actually would be useful and I I prefer to knit with wool like I love the elasticity of wool so I've tended to try for wool projects so like a dishcloth didn't make sense to me because it like you probably need to be a cotton one and I was like I hate knitting with cotton so I feel like I don't want to start someone off on this fiber that I hate and I did a lot of like knit you knit like a rectangle and then you like leave a hole for your thumb and like make make these really they're not like amazing looking fingerless mittens but they're like a project that you can do but anyway I've looked up a lot of those like YouTube tutorials on like knitting a beanie flat I feel like there's a lot of YouTube tutorials out there for that yeah absolutely now that you've mentioned that why doesn't someone have yeah beginners flat hat pattern I haven't seen many at all I mean I don't look for them but I I haven't seen um, any of like the designers that I follow frequently I haven't seen them put one out so yeah I often wonder if once you've been knitting for a few years, you kind of just forget what it's like to be a beginner. And I, I I, remember being really frustrated by that as a beginner, that other people were just like, yeah, so you just knit in the round and then da, 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 and they would like talk about things as if it was really obvious. And I couldn't even figure out what side of my work I was on yeah. if I was yes. doing a stitch without like getting to the end. Like I would be on the bus and almost miss my stop because I'd be like, <laughs> I have to get to the end of this row because otherwise I won't know which side I'm on. Like I just couldn't, I didn't know how to read, you know, quote unquote, read my knitting or anything. Like it was all very like pulling from random pieces, remembering random stuff my mom taught me. But again, like all of this was really random. And I I remember early on being like, I'm not going to be one of those like, you know, more practice knitters who forgets what it's like to be a beginner. <laughs> and I totally have. Like somebody will come with to me with a knitting pattern. I'm like, oh yeah, doop, 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 doop. this is how you do it. And it like it, you know, we there's this level of fluency that you sort of start to be start to have with knitting once you've been doing it for a few years that is extremely helpful. And is I think part of why you're able to just like pick it up after work and be like, yep, done, did a row. That feels great. I don't have to think about it. But I also think it's like hard to remember what it's like for it to not be meditative, for it not to be fun. Like it's, it wasn't fun when I first did it. I don't know if that was the case for you, but I found it hard. (laughs) I feel like I, I think it's fun because I like those kind of challenges. I yeah. I love learning new kind of craft related things like this. Oh, I think it was always fun. But mm-hmm. I do, I think it's fair when you say we take for granted the things that we have already, you know, learned and ingrained and it, like even the muscle memory that it takes to, to knit or purl or, or whatever it is, you know, the, how you hold your needles. Like I remember needing to learn that because I could not figure yes. out how to do everything with just you know, 10 fingers, two hands. I was, I was trying to like wedge the needle like in my arm. Like, like it was just so, it was so difficult. And I had to watch videos and really study like, you know, the videos that don't say like, Oh, you know, now I'm, now I'm moving my hand this way, but you're trying to like dissect the information because you're like, they're doing it so effortlessly. There must be something I'm missing. Yes. Yeah. But 
also related to that lately on my Instagram, I've been, I've been trying to put out more beginner related instructional content for knitting and sewing. Mm, And I was so surprised at the questions that I've been getting questions like sewing related. How do I, how do I use a pattern? Mm. And when I read that question, I was like, I've never even thought about that as a question. I thought you just Mm-hmm. You just buy it and open it and, and you read, you cut the pieces. I mean, to me, it's second nature yeah. or like, how yeah. do I thread a machine? And to me, that's something I learned right. when I was, you know, a child. So I, I've never thought to have to teach that to somebody as, as an adult or, or teach it to myself as an adult. So yeah. it is, it is amazing how much we forget that we didn't know. Right. Right. That you just take for granted as being like something you can just do because it's quote unquote simple. Yeah. I try to think a lot too about like, not calling things easy or not saying like, this was so easy, you can do it. Like I, I want to encourage people to try things, but I also want them to know that it's not all easy. And like, it's okay that it's hard for you or it's okay that you're struggling with this part of it or you don't like part of it. Like I think sometimes I get really, personally, I get caught up in looking at other people making things and like doing things that are technically very complicated. Like the Baba sweater, for example. <laughs> people just like, I read the stitches. I'm using lots of air quotes here. Like I <laughs> read this it's just this you know grace for example i am like so mind blown at how somebody just looks at a garment and is like cool i made it <laughs> like i just understood where the increases needed yeah. to go and i can sort of read my knitting i have been knitting since i was 10 years wow, old i didn't know that like, that's amazing I, <laughs> Yeah, like on and off. So I mean, really, probably like 10 years of like true solid, really spending time knitting. But like, there's a lot of stuff I don't know how to do. And it's in part, I think, just like how my brain works. It's also in part that I like just it feeling easeful and attainable and like something I can just sort of like mindlessly work on. But there's all these things like that we don't, that a lot of people don't know how to do. And it's not like they might feel easy for one person, but they might not feel easy for another person. And I don't know. I like, yeah, I have trouble with that because I do think it's important to be like, this is beginner friendly, but like, you know how patterns will have like advanced beginner or the, and mm-hmm. then you'll read what the actual things are. And you're like, oh, so you want me to install a zipper and a button and an eye hole and use interfacing like, you know, advanced beginner can like, and I'm like, that doesn't feel like it's attainable at all to me at all. And it's sort of interesting that we like, Like, I don't know if there's ever going to be sort of like a standardized craft difficulty level rating system. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It is is so deceiving sometimes when you watch somebody do something really fast um, on social media and you're like, oh, that seems easy. They're making it look easy. But I mean, you're not seeing the years of experience, all the failures, so many failures. I mean, things come easily to me because... I've failed so many times and now they're easy. But I mean, when I, when I'm failing, it's, it's miserable. I mean, it, I, I can show you so many <laughs> horrible things that I've made. And sometimes I'm like, oh, wow, I, I just wasted this fabric or like, oh, I wasted this or this material, but it's a process. It's more a process that's rewarding in, in learning about it and not so much in getting that final result. Mm, I think so too. I feel like I've read things before where people are like, are you a garment knitter or a process knitter? And I think like, you know, it's sort of like people try to like put you into camps. I don't know. I think, I think humans often try to like, you know, make boxes and make it easy to understand you as a person. Like I am a process knitter. Therefore I only care about the process, but I, I think there's like different sort of motivations depending on the thing you're working on and the need at the time that it fills. Like there are objects that I have made that I look back at and I'm like, that was purely because I needed something to pour grief into. That was like at a time in my life when I was really sad about something and I just needed some, I needed like a companion during that time that I didn't have to talk to that I could just sort of like stitch away on. Or like I saw that thing that I really wanted to buy and didn't have the money for or whatever and tried to make that thing you know like it's sort of I think sometimes there are like garments that you're like you're like the end result really matters to me and I really want to get it exactly looking like this specific image in my mind or thing I saw on the internet or whatever Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely I feel like that is part of the motivation for me Mm. definitely it definitely helps to structure the problem solving of it for me 
you know, the reason why I like to draft my own garments is because I enjoy that problem solving part of it. Um, it's, it's very much related to architecture. So my architecture work, you know, you just, you have a design intent and you, you need to figure out everything technical and practical that you need to achieve that design. Mm. So the, the problem solving aspect uh, of the process is what I think motivates me the most. I, I don't tend to repeat knit patterns. I, I generally tend mm. to gravitate towards maybe a new technique, a new construction method, a new um, maybe yarn combination even that could produce a different right. fabric um, or require a different kind of handling. Um, so I, I do tend to, you know, only work on new to me processes. Yeah. Um, but definitely having that um, end goal of a certain idea of a garment is, is part of it. But it, it's hard to make that the whole goal because it almost never yes. turns out the way I think it will. Almost never. Like, I well, really, can't think of a single yeah. minute where I'm like, this is what I'm making. This is exactly what it's going to look like. It, it's really yeah. hard. And I, I think I would set myself up for a lot of failure if I did do that. So it's been helpful for me to, you know, frame it in as, as a process more than as like, and now I'm going to have this amazing closet, you know? Yes. I think that is such an, such an important point. And it's for myself, it's only been in, I think it was actually only in knitting the like Oslo Baba inspired sweater that was inspired by your sweater <laughs> <laughs> where I was like, oh, the pattern is a template. The pattern is just to give me enough structure so that I'm not have, feeling like I have to flail around with the math because the math is not the part I'm interested in for the most part when it comes to knitting. I just want something that will give me the, the bones of the garment that I want to make at this point. And I feel like that was the first time that I was like, oh, I'm going to just not. I mean, it was very helpful that you had written your notes to be like, she left out the side shaping. Oh, great. That gives you, I mean, it, I can kind of imagine that probably leaving out the side shaping would give me a more boxy fit, but it was helpful to have somebody else have like gone that path before so I could kind of see it done. I think it's really interesting thinking about the way that the knitwear community works and that like knitwear design works in that it's like, a person designs a thing, it's made really specifically, it's made in a very specific yarn. And if you want your thing to look even remotely like that thing, it's like you kind of have to get that yarn. I just didn't know any of this stuff until I started working in a yarn store and they were very like, you know, <laughs> you have to buy, da, da, da. you know, it was like a very wag your finger kind of a situation, which I, I, which I found honestly in a lot of yarn stores where it's very kind of like, didn't you know that you needed to do this to do that thing? <laughs> and I'm like, I didn't. And honestly, I think it's freeing to, to put that perspective onto it of like, it doesn't have to look exactly like Andrea Mowry's finished garment and it doesn't and it's not going to look exactly like XYZ designer's finished garment because it's your knitting and no one can ever replicate your exact knitting or that person's exact knitting because our hands like produce something so different and I like the idea that you this intention that you bring to it of like I'm learning a new skill or a new technique or I'm trying it out I like this sort of responsiveness to your knitting of like hmm I'm gonna try out these fibers in order to make a fabric like I think the idea of using knitwear or like the knitting process to create a fabric was a really it's pretty fresh to me it wasn't something I learned early on in, in thinking about knitting and I, f I feel like that thought process around it makes it feel really special and specific to you and specific to that moment where you're like I'm producing a fabric like a specific type of fabric and like I want it to have these qualities of like drapiness or warmth or breathability or lightness like kind of bringing in more purpose and more like maybe more ephemeral qualities rather than just I want it to look like that thing I saw on a on like that somebody else made or something like that yeah I think that's true of anything that you can make with your hands and any raw material yeah. I mean knitting is knitting is 3d printing you know you're, yeah you're literally making a sheet of something with this filament Right. I like the how you said now you're now, you know, that you're knitting maybe not exactly the pattern that you bought, you're kind of like modifying it. That has been really interesting to me as um as someone who's like just starting out to dabble in maybe pattern making um and putting out patterns mm -hmm. for other people because as 
as a sewer or as a knitter, I almost have, I don't think I've ever followed a pattern to a T. Like I've always modified something. Mm. And my favorite patterns are the ones that instruct you in a way that uh, makes it easy for you to modify. It makes it easy for you to understand why you're doing that step. And if you wanted a different result, how you would modify that step yeah. or how you would add fabric or add this or change the portions. And it's all about, mm-hmm. it's all about giving the person the structure and the organization for them to understand why and, and the how of the step instead of doing like exactly what the step says. Right. I think that's a really key distinction that has been part of how I've been approaching sewing that I didn't realize I wasn't doing before. Like I was so afraid of patterns because I was like, I don't, there's all these steps and you have to follow them exactly. And now that I've, you know, I, and I don't do much and I don't really know what I'm doing at all, but I, I feel like I basically have one dress pattern that I just have figured like, oh, that basically fits me through the bust. So that's good enough. Like it's not perfect, but nothing I, you know, I wear a lot of oversized shit anyways, who cares? And realizing all of these simple, oh, I don't, I just cut where I want to cut and there's a bust instead of a dress. Like, oh, right. I have a bust piece now. And like kind of thinking of it as these like modular pieces that you can then, once I realized, oh, a puff sleeve is just a rectangle that I gather until it fits the right size. Like it was, it also took out the fear that I had about like making sure that I exactly matched up my like inset seam, whatever shoulder seam to make sure that it like, didn't pucker somewhere like it just made me so much less fearful and made me feel like oh I'm getting the garment that I'm interested in making and like a trend silhouette that I'm curious about right now but don't want to like invest too heavily in maybe I'll invest a bed sheet in it or whatever (laughs) but it was just kind of this like it felt like pattern hacking that I came into by accident in a way that felt way less scary than being like, oh, I'm ha- quote hacking a pattern. Like, how does that work? You know, like it seems scary somehow or something. That term is so funny. I never, I never heard that before. I kind of started browsing the, you know, in the Instagram sewing community yeah. um, posts. And I, at first I was so confused because, you know, it's like, oh, it's an alteration, you know, like that's, I think technically what it, what it really is, but yeah, it's, it's a funny term. Um, and it makes it seem maybe, I I don't know if it makes it seem more difficult for some people who are, who are maybe intimidated by it. Yeah. It's not easy. Like, let's, you know, I agree. Like it's, it's maybe wrong to call that process easy, but it can be simple if you break it down and if you just understand the steps um, and and the why. And it's really liberating, I think, when you can understand that step and you can control how that happens to, to control the outcome. Yeah, I think that's really cool. And and the piece of sewing for me that like has really taken many years of just like vaguely picking up a machine and trying to sew straight lines and feeling really frustrated by it to like start to have that form where it's like, oh, okay, I can just sort of piece things together and start to create garments that like aren't perfect but they're but they're technique learning like I feel like I build a new technique each time I'm at the machine or I'm like and now I sort of understand French seams and I practiced a shitload of French seams and like oh now I understand a like French seamed pocket like an oh my first inseam pocket and like oh my <laughs> bias binding I freaking hate I just like cannot do necklines for the life of me I like have a lot of things sitting that are just necklineless at this point because I'm like oh I gotta do the whole you know and I have my like go-to tutorials that I am, have up on my phone that I like scroll to and I'm like what's the step now do I have to iron it do I have to clip it like what's the deal but it's that same yeah. kind of thing you're talking about of like when you pick a pattern or you pick something that you're thinking about working on this like does it have something that's going to help me make sense of how a garment comes together or why the garment comes together in the way that it does. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I don't have a serger. So doing French seams is like the closest I can get to doing seams that I feel good about that will like last in the garment or something. No, I think it's really great that you've been experimenting with that, say like that dress uh, pattern. Oh yeah. And just altering small things because that's how someone can learn what the heck pattern making is. It really is just making shapes yeah. and sewing it up and seeing how it falls on your body. I mean, it's going to fall differently on every body. So it's, yeah. it's been really interesting to me to do it on myself and just to study like, Hey, if I move this a quarter of an inch this way, what does that look like? 
all of a sudden a set in sleeve becomes maybe a like partially drop sleeve. And then what happens when you just keep moving it is a drop sleeve. So there's just, there's a moment where you learn all these technical things and you're wondering why there's so much technical stuff that you have to learn. But then at some point you understand what it's for and you can apply it to your aesthetic. You can apply it to design ideas. So it's the marrying of the technical craft, the, um, just like the, the pure technique and know-how of doing it right. and then applying a vision or an idea that you have. And that part is, is like what keeps me interested in, in making garments. And I think it is that marriage between form and function where you just, you, you have to intersect all those things. You have to intersect aesthetics. You have to intersect craft and technique. Yeah. And without, without one of those things, you might get lost. You, you might not know how to do it, or you might not know what you're trying to get. So you don't have a clear direction of an idea of, of what you're sewing. Um, right. I think that, I mean, that's how I relate all of the things that I do together, like pottery, right. knitting, sewing, and, and even architecture. You know, it's really, it's that intersection of something needs to function. Something needs to look good. Mm-hmm. And you have to know how to do that thing. Mm-hmm. I, I find I kind of lose interest if any one of those three things are not there. I don't know. I, I don't know why. I mean, it's that spatial quality of like function and form. I don't know yes. why that that attracts me, but it yeah. really is. I mean, for example, like quilting. I love I love quilts. I, you know, I think everyone's going through this quilt phase right now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I love it, but yeah. I don't, I think it's maybe the surface design aspect of it that I struggle with because I, the surface design is just not, doesn't come, I don't have ideas for surface design. Yeah. Whereas garment making, sweaters, um, cups, pottery, those are, those are three-dimensional things and the material can largely dictate the surface design. So I don't have to worry about that. I let the process put its mark on surface design. I don't have to, you know, personally do it. Right. But yeah, I think that's so interesting about sewing and how it's, you know, it's the intersection of all these things. And then in the end, you get to wear it and it's, it's an expression of you. Right. No, I think that that has been, I've thought a lot about this as well with the like intersection of form and function and how I've for a long time had trouble thinking of my practice as being like quote artistic because it because so much of like what has been important to me in my life and in my work has been about it having some like utilitarian end like I want to be able to wear something at the end I want to be able to make something make someone warm at the end you know like this kind of I think there is I actually do believe that there is like art in utility. Like I do think that there's something really special and important about that. And I don't think that it, I absolutely don't think that that like devalues craft at all. Like I think that oh, I think it important. adds to it. Right. Like I think that that's actually really important, but it also is this interesting thing of like, I sometimes feel like I bubble my work into being like, it has to have a form or like it has to have a function. And if it doesn't like, like I'm trying to pull back some of that language so that I have a little bit more room for play of just like, I don't yet know how to make this garment, but I'm going to put these pieces together to see what happens. Like, I think sometimes I want to peel back some of that for a moment. Like, I think the ultimate goal of having it have function is important to me, but allowing for some spaces where there's a little bit more playfulness and just kind of Mm -hmm. experimentation to get to a point where you can make something functional. Like that sort of- That kind of like space of like, yeah, have the idea, but I can't quite execute it yet feels like, you know, it's, oh, yeah. that feels important too. Totally. I really struggle with giving myself that space to play. I really struggle with it. I feel like when I have an idea, I want to know right away how to do it. And it's, it's kind of difficult for me to just play, just yeah. explore. Yeah. It, it is important though. I'll have to send you, I've, I think I've quoted this Ira Glass thing like a million times on this podcast. So apologies to anyone who has listened to this for a while. But Ira Glass kind of talks about having good taste, basically, like being a person whose taste is, he's like, you know, your taste is solid. Like, that's why you're here. You know, like that's something that's, it's going to be good, but you can't quite execute it yet. And he's talking about it within the context of like his radio production and that he knew like he was onto something, <laughs> this like storytelling thing, but he didn't know how to produce 
produce radio in a way that was compelling. And he like, he was like, just keep at it. Like, keep doing it. Keep making your work. And one Mm -hmm. day, one day you will be able to like fulfill the vision of like what you aesthetically thought you could produce in your brain, but couldn't quite translate through your hands. And I wouldn't say that like for me, I feel like, yeah, yeah, woo, done. Like I can totally (laughs) fulfill my aesthetic vision through my hands or my work or whatever. But I do feel like, especially in looking back at the work I've made over the years that I can see the like through line of like aesthetic building and like the craft technique building on top of that aesthetic to a point where I'm like, I am really proud of that thing I made or that does look a lot closer to what I was envisioning it might look like, you know, like, yeah, I think there's obviously still room for like, that didn't really match what I wanted at all. Because <laughs> that happens a lot. Yeah. too. But that kind of willingness to be disappointed in your own work for like a long mm. period of time, because it's not measuring up to the vision you had in your brain and like doing it anyway, being like, I'm not yet good at it, but I'm going to keep doing it, you know? Mm-hmm. That's an interesting story. And I totally relate to it because before I started seriously doing pottery, I should show you, I should show you the, like the mood board images or like the inspiration images I would collect and be like, I love this pot. I love this cup. I love like this. And they, they look nothing like what I make now. Like absolutely nothing. Like I thought my style or my aesthetic was a certain way, but I couldn't physically output that for some reason. I just couldn't, it just looked like somebody else's work Mm -hmm. um, or it looked like I was trying too hard or that's how it felt to me. And slowly, very slowly, I felt like, you know, when you make, I think pottery is especially relevant to this idea, to this process, because it is very gestural and it happens Mm. really quickly. You throw the clay and you can't play with it too much because it'll just collapse. Mm. So it kind of has to come very naturally and quickly. Mm. Um, And like at some point I just made this mug shape or like this vase shape and it's, and you just feel like what you're seeing is right. And you stop. And I, you know, as a having an architecture background, I thought that my style was very, you know, straight, rectilinear, uh, geometric, maybe even colorful or, yeah, just like very strict. But I couldn't produce things that follow those kind of guidelines. I I just felt like it wasn't, it just just didn't feel right. Yeah. So it's it's really interesting to me how my style has developed just from doing it and just yeah. from feeling it out and seeing what happens and being like, this feels right to me. I don't know why, but it does. Right. And now I see my pottery is having this language. You know, it's it's more organic than I ever thought it would be. Mm. It's more, it's just textural. It's muted in color because I'm interested in light and shadows and texture. Mm. And I didn't know any of those things before I started. And similarly clothing, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know I would be interested in pattern drafting. I I didn't know I'd be interested in, in linen and cotton. And, you know, I didn't know that stuff until I started and started feeling like, Hey, I really like this, or I really gravitate towards this. And then asking yourself why I think it's, I think everyone should go through it. I feel like you just learn so much about yourself when you make something. Yeah. You make that decision for yourself. No one's telling you like use this fabric or use this or do this or make it look like this. You're deciding for yourself and every decision you come across says something about you and your self-expression. Yeah. I just, I think it's, it's very therapeutic. First of all, I think that's why when I don't get, have time to make things, I I get really anxious and antsy. Yeah. But it also just lets you get to know yourself and build character that way. Yeah. I feel like it echoes kind of what we've talked about throughout the conversation of like responsiveness to to the process, responsiveness in your knitting, responsiveness in, in your pattern making and like small adjustments as you go as learning about how you interact with a garment. And then also kind of the aesthetics of figuring yourself out as you're going, just this kind of like it's process, yeah. it's responsive, it's personal. It's like really specifically personal. Like you can't knit that sweater that somebody else made because it's your sweater. Like it's your hands making it. I really like that. I'm really curious to hear about two two things that I wanted to touch on and and one of them is kind of your like familial connection to sewing and like the garment manufacturing business that your parents had can you tell us about that yes um this is so important to me so when we moved to Canada from Taiwan I'm also an immigrant so I'm Canadian and I'm an immigrant 
just that's my background. Um, so born in Taiwan, immigration stories, right? Yes, yes, yeah. um, displacement. Yes. So my family moved from Taiwan to Canada when I was five. Hmm. So when I was younger, my parents were working in the garment um, manufacturing industry in Montreal. Um, there was a really large industry there, and um, I remember as a child going into the factory. At some point, they um, managed to buy their own business and run their own factory. So that was—I mean—that that was a really big part of my life. Yeah, my siblings and I would complain all the time because in the summer we'd have to go in and help or go in and you know just do uh, miscellaneous things um, in the factory. But now I look back and it was such a valuable time for me to learn about work ethic and learn learn about manufacturing maybe and yeah. just have exposure to that kind of environment. And it, it was not a huge uh, factory, but you know, we had a, we had a handful of machines and mm. um, pressing stations. And I, you know, you get to see how garments are made from having a cut piece of fabric all the way down to finishing and mm. packaging. Yeah, I guess that's where my background comes from mostly just having a base understanding of line production. Yeah, which is really I didn't I guess like as an adult now I realize like not everyone understands how that works yeah totally but it was just such a big part of our lives and I remember one summer my mom I think she had to go back to Taiwan for a couple weeks and she was like okay you need to manage the line production of the sewing so you need to like move these pieces from station to station and make sure everyone has enough work make sure they have what they need make sure that things are moving along (laughs) and that was like so stressful and I mean, she did it, you know, for years and I'm, right. I'm like here two weeks and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't handle this. Like this is too much, but it just taught me so much about how things are assembled. Like I, I guess I take for granted that I knew how a lined jacket gets put together Yeah. with the bag lining method and how to like close everything up. So yeah. all of that stuff I kind of already had because I was exposed to it. Right. So yeah, it was a great time. It's super stressful. I mean, they were six days a week and right. it was grueling, really stressful. And as you know, when you make physical goods to sell, you need to be, you need to be like so precise mm-hmm. and you need to quality check so much because it's easy for someone to just be like, this is not what I pay for and right. send it back. Right. So yeah, a lot of lesson learned from that. Yeah. And it's still a human at the end of the day, like doing the sewing and it's not yeah, going to be you know, it's gonna like human imperfections. I'm like consistently, I will often look at my like ready to wear garments and just like be mar- just like marvel at the seams. I'm like, how? I can't get it. Like I can't sew even one single straight seam, <laughs> like for the life of me truly. And it's like, really yeah, quite amazing. No, it's so, int- I still remember the workers that we had and like some mm. of their names and like some of their personalities. And it's just, it is people like, people are making these and right well and I think a lot of people don't like that that connection isn't there for for a lot of folks I think anyone who's listening to this podcast it probably is but like be outside the world of this podcast and the communities that we are in online I think a lot of times people are like well yeah robots could be sewing my clothes or like (laughs) that could be pretty industrialized and like yes to an extent clothing manufacturing is somewhat industrialized, like you're cutting multiple things at once, et cetera. But like at the end of the day, it's still like, this is a whole other conversation about quote handmade and like how that language gets oh my gosh. if it's like totally. been a colonialized <laughs> nation or not, you know, just that kind of like, woof. Yeah. So yeah. We'll have to come back to that someday. Cause that's a, a big, juicy <laughs> one. but I think like I think that's really special that you got to have that kind of, I mean, obviously there's, it's many layers. It sounds like it was really hard and stressful, but also like this really interesting, very close up look at manufacturing. Yes, it was, like you said, so many layers of of things that I've carried with me and like make me how I am today that I didn't realize until now I see like, oh, not everyone had that experience. And like, totally. this is what I took away from it. And it's been so valuable. Yeah. And then you're, you've been drafting patterns lately and like sewing patterns. And we've been talking a little bit before about the pattern that you've been working on for a publication. Is that something you can talk to us about right now? I don't know like how far pipes it is or like. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. No, it's, um, well, it's almost done. Um, although the publication date is not until May, 
but my part of the work is almost done. It's been such a lovely experience. I didn't know what it would be like going in, but I have to say the magazine I'm working with is lovely. And I don't think if they had not pushed me to do it, not that they pushed me, I said yes. And, you know, we're all, <laughs> no, I get it. <laughs> yeah. Having a deadline. Um, exactly. Having yeah. a deadline um, and something real. I don't think I would have started doing pattern making as seriously. And I wouldn't have been as um, maybe proactive in pushing that part of my studio practice. Mm. I think that that's because of a few reasons. One is, you know, you always feel like you're busy. You don't have enough time to do anything. You know, as we were saying before, like we always have a million projects going on. But also, you know, I'm not trained in pattern making. I don't have pattern making experience from working with my parents. Mm. Uh, you know, it was it was production. So we didn't do any of the drafting. Although my mom, my mom is a very talented drafter. And I was always so impressed. So I was always like, oh, like, I wish I could do that. Like she could just like, you know, draft a dress. And that's so cool. And like, I never knew how to do it until now. And I'm still learning. So part of it maybe is a bit of having imposter syndrome, just mm. being like, oh, like, who am I to, you know, sell a sewing pattern to somebody who maybe has more experience than me. So there are all these reasons why I felt like I couldn't really enter that realm. And having someone push me to say like, you can do it. We put our trust in you. And also kind of backing me up as like, as a legitimate designer, maybe was really special and empowering. And yeah, it's made me realize like, yeah, I mean, I can make I can make sewing patterns. I have drafts that I'm so excited to turn into sewing patterns because I feel like I'm really proud of them. I wear these designs and I feel like other people would too. So yeah, it's been a wonderful experience, not just doing this one pattern, but also just opening up that door for future patterns. Yeah. I love that. It's like given you that little push to, to have the confidence in yourself that like, yeah, you can totally do this. And there's nothing that distinguishes you from anyone else who's like decided to self-publish patterns or publish with a publishing house or whatever. You know, I, I think probably a lot of people would who who sell patterns like for a living would probably feel similarly where they're like, I didn't really feel like I was qualified to do this. And then I just did it, you know? Yeah. And same with my pottery. I mean, I, I'm not sure tr- I took a class, you know, like, you know, right. a casual evening class. And when I started selling, I just felt like, can I do this? Like, are people going to want this? I don't know. Right. And then you just, you just put it out there and slowly you get confidence and yeah. and you do it for I guess I should say slowly you realize the reasons why you want to do it and I mean personally for me it's it's just about sharing and outputting ideas and sharing that with people and I get a lot of satisfaction when not necessarily when someone wants to buy something but when someone else gains confidence in themselves by either having a piece that I made or by seeing a story that I put out there and be like, Oh my gosh, I've always wanted to sew. Like you just inspired me like to pick up sewing, you know, or I mean, that's the most rewarding thing for me to just put out those ideas and share with people. Yeah, totally. I know that you're very busy studying for exams right now, architecture exams, but in the world of making, is there anything in particular that you're feeling like really excited about or something you're working on in the the near term that you want to share? Um, yes, I'm working on a couple of patterns that I'm hoping to turn into a digital sewing pattern that people can use. One is a pleated pants pattern. Ooh, yeah. I'm hoping that there might be an elasticized version and a regular waistband version. This is like a new idea. And I'm like, oh my gosh, can I make the same pattern, but like different waistbands? I'm not sure yet. Um, so yeah. stay tuned. And the second pattern that I'm working on is a sleeveless top. It's very simple. It's a V-neck. And I I wear this cut, you know, like almost every day in the summer. So I've been really wanting to share that as a pattern with people. That's so exciting. I also, yeah, I'm really excited to see how it turns out to try like multiple waistband situation because that, I mean, as a person who pretty much never wears anything but elastic waistbands, <laughs> just going to put that out there. I, yeah, I'm just super interested to see how that will work because I think it's really lovely to be able to have something that works for anybody's comfort or body or how they like things to hold or not hold them. (laughs) I personally prefer to be unheld by my trousers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think the idea of having the same silhouette, but fundamentally different waistband 
drafting and construction, I that was really interesting to me. So I love that. Uh, it might not turn out, but we'll see. Yeah, I'm excited. Very excited. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Ani. So happy to have you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. The Close Knit Podcast is hosted by me, Ani Lee. A huge thank you to Andrew Bruce for writing podcast theme music that makes me genuinely smile every time I hear it. And giant thanks to my amazing producer, Amelia Harubi. You can subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts and support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash close knit. <laughs>